Warning, Money's Crazy Mind contains language that may not be suitable for all listeners. Discretion is advised, but will be completely f- ignored. <laughs> I'm sick of it, doing right, doing wrong Parents pissed off every time I write a song Smoke crack, which I'm saying, what the fuck is that? It's something funny, made for you to laugh at You're destroying America with your rap You're so full of shit, I need to call hazmat The only way I would ever apologize Is if I had my face buried in your sister's thighs Okay, I'm sorry for what it's worth But the best part of you was the afterbirth If you can't take a fucking joke Then go jump in the river Nah, 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 nah And I fucked your sister You can't take a fucking joke Then go jump in the river And I fucked your sister Oh, oh, oh. Man. It's a little weird being behind the mic. First time in a month that we've been here. But uh, feeling, feeling fucking good, man. You know, sometimes just a little bit of time away. Sometimes just a little bit of... Uh, of a rebirth. A reimagining. A retelling. A redoing. A re... Whatever you want to call it is kind of needed, you know, and that's exactly what I did, man. You know, I decided let's take a little bit of time away, you know, had a lot going on, still have a little bit going on health wise, but I'm in a much better place than I was at the beginning of August. And, you know, I sat here. And I even think I might even still have the video of part of the episode that I recorded for that week. It was going to be a recorded video. Um, and then, because the Four Loco concert was that night. Um, so I was going to record the episode because I knew I was going to be there plus i had a doctor's appointment that day there, there was a lot of shit going on right um but yeah you know i mean the time away it, it was good i feel rejuvenated i feel better i feel like i'm ready to go with this damn thing and um you know a few announcements here before we get into what we're going to talk about this week, okay? Um, sorry, Debo Crazy, but I got some things I got to tell the people, man. And um, don't want to have letters to my killer plane in the background. As always, huge shout out to my guys over in Psych Ward uh, for their continued use of Funny Bone and all their music. Uh, huge shout out to Behead the Prophet, man. Um, that episode was gangbusters back in August and, uh, felt good. 
having those guys uh, be the last show that I did. Or actually, it was July. I'm sorry. Um, but it felt good, you know, having those guys be the last episode that I did that month. Um, and uh, we, uh, yeah, you know, everything went went really good. So um, a couple of things here. Um, this is probably going to be one of the last episodes in Spook Central with a green screen for a little bit. I know. You know, it's got to be done. You know, it's just for a little bit. Um, we're going to do some more upgrades. So anytime that I decide to stop doing something, it's because I'm working on something better. Uh, so just 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 beware of that. Uh, we're going to change some things up here in Spook Central. Um, I'm going to try to see if I can make it possible to have a guest or two in Spook Central, too. I just got to... I got to see how the dynamics with, with more than one microphone is going to work before I get into that part of it. Uh, but I'm moving the location of Spook Central for one. So that's part one. Part two, I'm going to get a little bit of a better green screen so that I don't have to do this. You see how my arms go bye-bye and I have just a little tiny little area. Um, I want to change some things up so that that's not going to be an issue anymore. Uh, so I just got to wait for that to come in. We're going to get a little bit more better lighting here in Spook Central. Uh, but the other part of that announcement is that money's crazy. Mind is going to be moving back to studio number one for a little bit. But with the kind of green screen that I'm looking into for what I'm going to do here, it's portable. So I can take it with me to Studio One. So you guys still get the green screen. You guys still get everything that you're used to seeing on the show and everything like that. But, you know, for a little bit here, we're going to go a little Spartan with Money's Crazy Mind. Just for a little bit. And then once these upgrades are a little bit done, that's what I was trying to get done in August. Uh, you know, but like I said, some some health issues kind of sprung up, obviously, at the end of June. Carried over into July which then started carrying over into August. So I just wanted to take some time away, focus on mother puss bucket, man. Focus on me for a little bit and, you know, get me back to being 100% so that I can come back here and do the show. Um, so uh, that's it for announcements. But let's... Uh, Let's talk about some of our new sponsors here at Redline Radio LLC really quick. Uh, it's more than a slogan. At Tuffy, we stand behind our work and promise that it will get done right, period. Or we'll fix it for free. The Tuffy location that sponsors Redline Radio is located at 649 Leona Street in Illyria. Just tell them that Redline Radio sent you. Now, let's say you place a big order with Mike and Diane over at Incredible Keepsakes, and you need it shipped to you, or you need it shipped out to wherever the hell it needs to go, right? Well, we use all pro freight system. They're located at 1200 Chester Industrial uh, Parkway in Avon. 
You can call them at 440-933-2222, and you can ask for Matt. Let them know that you heard about All Pro Freight right here on Redline Radio LLC. Now, I actually was going to do like a little hour-long special last week because of something that happened. But obviously, as we all know, Thursday night, Mother Nature decided to wreak some fucking havoc on Northeast Ohio, man. 12 tornadoes, 12. We are up to 12, ladies and gentlemen. 12 tornadoes ripped through Northeast Ohio on Thursday. No power here at Spook Central. No power in a lot of places in Northeast Ohio. Um, So I didn't get to do that one hour special that I wanted to do. However, let's say you got your lights back. Let's say you got Spook Central back. But you noticed it's hot in there. Maybe it's cold in there. You know, who knows? You need to get your air conditioner fixed. You need to get your heat fixed. Well, there's only one place that we use here at Redline Radio, and that is Sensible Solutions HVAC. At Sensible Solutions HVAC, they specialize in service, maintenance, repair, and installation of all things at HVAC. You can reach them at 440-495-8387 and let them know that you mentioned them right here on Redline Radio LL. See, and then finally, if you're trying to quit smoking, or maybe you just need some CBD oil, you know, for like a medical condition or something like that, and you want to do some vaping, you can go to Puff and Roll in Elyria. They're your favorite local smoke shop. Do they have an address on here? That is my big question. So they do. 464 North Abbey Road in Elyria, Ohio. You can call them at 440-444-4443. Or you can check them out on Instagram at at puff underscore and the letter N underscore roll. You can ask for Dave or Dan and get 10% off when you mention Red Line Radio. All right. So... Like I just mentioned, I was going to do a one-hour little thing last week um, to kind of just talk about um, some horrible news that we got last week. And um, I want to take the time here now to kind of just share what we were going to talk about last week had we been able to do the the one-hour special that I wanted to do. But obviously, Mother Nature, like I said, had other plans. And, you know, it's kind of funny because, like, we were, my wife and I, we were sitting down and we decided to go back and we wanted to watch some of the old Bray Wyatt moments on the WWE Network, you know, like their debut on Raw, the uh, tag, the, the Tornado Tag match against the Shield, the TLC match against the Shield. Uh, you know, the birth of the Fiend, the Firefly Funhouse, all of that stuff. And right as we were getting to the part where they were about to come out and debut on Monday Night Raw is when we get the message on our phone that we're under a tornado warning. So, you know, we turn off the Bray Wyatt stuff and then we go and turn the news on. And about two minutes later, that's when it all was done. No more power. And we didn't get it back until 
probably around 4 or 5 a.m. So, I mean, we were one of the lucky ones. We got it back pretty quick. Uh, but then it went out again Friday afternoon. Um, so, you know, those, those storms wreaked havoc on a lot of people. And a lot of people are still cleaning up from that mess. So, but obviously I mentioned the fact that Wyndham Rotunda, better known to as, by his WWE character, Bray Wyatt passed away last Thursday from complications uh, following COVID. Um, and also the day before that, we lost another great Hall of Famer, a multi-generational talent in the world of professional wrestling, and that is Terry Funk. I'm a little disappointed in what WWE did to remember Terry Funk. They had they had Cody come out and he told the story about him and his dad being at the airport and you hear somebody screaming at his dad from across the, the way and that person turned out to be Terry Funk. Um, but that was pretty much the only story that they told them. They played a little video clip, of, uh, you know, but they didn't do a lot of video package for Terry. Uh, for me... My first exposure to Terry Funk was actually when he was with ECW. And ECW thought highly enough of Terry Funk that in 1997, at their very first ever pay-per-view, Barely Legal, they gave Terry Funk the ECW World Heavyweight Championship. And it was not an easy road by any stretch of the imagination for Terry Funk to get that belt. It wasn't just go out there and beat the current champion. No, no, no. He had to go through a three-way dance. And what's the difference between a three-way dance and a traditional uh, triple threat match is in a three-way dance, it's elimination. So you get one, two, three on one opponent. The other one's still waiting there to kick your ass. So Terry Funk had to get through not one, but two competitors that night. And then immediately after that, the ECW World Heavyweight Champion, who at the time was Raven, a red-hot Raven at that time, came down to the ring. So in the same night, and when I say some of these names, obviously if you're a WCW or a WWE fan, you've heard of Raven. Everybody knows who Raven is. Quote the Raven, nevermore. You know, Raven's flock. But back in ECW, yes, there was the Ravens flock. But it was definitely more of a cult. Go back on the WWE Network and watch ECW, the, the rise and fall of ECW. Kurt Angle is on there and he tells a story about how he was supposed to actually go to ECW. He showed up in the ECW arena back in the bingo hall in Philadelphia. And he was going to be on the TV program that night. Later on that night, while the show was going on, Raven decides to crucify on a cross the Sandman. And when Kurt saw this, he said, I want nothing to do with this. Take me off of this program. If my image is anywhere on this program, I will sue the fuck out of you. And Paul Heyman, being who Paul Heyman is, I mean, he's beaten some lawsuits in the past, let me tell you, but he decided to take Kurt Angle off of that program. 
But that is how red hot Raven was, that he was able to do a crucifixion of the Sandman live on television. And Raven's flock was still very, very much alive during that point. One of the members of, those flo- of, of his flock that was leaving the flock was Stephen Richards, Stevie Richards, as he was known back then. And when he left Raven's flock, he started a parody of the NWO called the Blue World Order, the BWO with the Blue Meanie. And there was one other member who, uh, who was in there, but I can't remember his name off the top of my head. The BWO was one of the hottest things in ECW at the time as well. Stevie Richards had earned the right to be in the three-way dance along with Terry Funk to see who's going to battle Raven for the ECW World Heavyweight Championship in the very next match. The third man in that three-way dance was the Sandman, the Singapore can-carrying, beer-drinking, cigarette-smoking, coming out to Metallica's Enter Sandman, Sandman. The man's entrance lasts longer than half of his matches. But that was part of what made the Sandman so fucking cool. Terry Funk would go on to beat both of these guys. And then he would come into the ring half fucking dead. Because by that point in 1997, Terry Funk was already an old goddamn man. Raven comes out. Sits in the corner the way he always does. Cult t-shirt on, leather jacket, long hair. You know, everything that made Raven, Raven. And Terry Funk beats him. And in the process of Terry Funk beating him, anybody that's ever watched ECW knows the commentary, unless it's a Vince McMahon production, was always a one-man show until they went to TNN, actually. So not not even a Vince McMahon production. When they went to TNN, they brought in Cyrus the Virus to, to do commentary with Joey Styles on behalf of the network. That was part of Paul Heyman's hatred for TNN. But that night, during the three-way dance and during the, the title battle with Raven, Tommy Dreamer was doing commentary with Joey Styles during both of those matches. And Tommy would come out and he would and you know he would say, Joey, I can't really talk right now. I love this man more than anybody can ever tell you. He was one of Tommy Dreamer's idols when it came to the world of professional wrestling. And when he saw that Raven was trying to cheat when the flock came out and was trying to beat the shit out of out of uh out of Terry, Tommy Dreamer left the, the commentary table and went down and tried to do something about it. Helping Terry Funk win the ECW World Heavyweight Championship on ECW's very first ever pay-per-view. Barely legal. The night I got word of Terry Funk's passing, that was what I did. I honored Terry by watching back that pay-per-view and those matches. And it made me remember just how much I had of respect for Terry Funk. The man is the definition of of a multi-generation superstar when it comes to WWE. I mean, just look at how long the man's been on the fucking earth, man. 
1944 came from a wrestling family the funk the funk family owned a professional wrestling organization terry and his brother dory wrestled for it but terry's also fought all over the world and actually have some of his japanese death matches against another man who thought very highly of terry funk and that is mick foley mankind dude love cactus jack however you remember the three faces of mick foley he has a ton of respect for that man terry funk and you and it's not just because they were a tag match when terry was probably in the worst gimmick of his career chainsaw charlie when him and him and mick foley are being dumped into a garbage dumpster and then thrown out like yesterday's trash they got the revenge against the New Age Outlaws. Let's let's not forget about that. But I mean, if you're Terry Funk and you're you're willing to go out there and you're willing to do a dumb fucking character like Chainsaw Charlie and get thrown into a dumpster by two of the biggest names in the business at the time, trying to impress Shawn Michaels and Triple H to become members of Degeneration X, which they eventually did. What else can you say about about Terry Funk? The man's retired more times than Ric Flair, though, too. You know, I mean, because every other day you're hearing about Terry Funk's last match. Ah, oh, Mick, you know I can still go out there and book a city. You know I can still go out there and make more money than you, Mick. Terry Funk was diagnosed. With dementia in the end of 2021, but yet the man was still sharp as a tack when it came to this business. In Mick's final tweet, in memory of his friend, Terry Funk, Mick put in there that, that those were the last words that Terry said to Mick. Is that he can still go out there and make the money. And I would believe that, man. If Terry Funk were to rise from the grave tomorrow and a wrestling company would put them on their card, Terry Funk would sell just about every ticket to that building. You know, and I just, I, I, I hate the fact that these death, ma- these Japanese death matches that I have of Terry's, the commentaries by the insane clown posse. And obviously I'm a fan of, of ICP, you know, I'm not putting ICP down, but it'd be really cool to hear some of the original Japanese commentary when it came to, to some of those, because I've, you know, ICP really didn't even have the legal rights to those matches. They just kind of did this dub over and they changed the names of everybody. Like Cactus Jack, Mick Foley is actually Cactus Sack. Terry Funk, I think was Terry Dump or maybe Jerry Funk or something like that. I don't remember 100%. But, um, you know, I do have some of those old Japanese death matches of Terry's. And, you know, those are actually really interesting to watch too because, you know, they call the man the, 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 the king of the death match. The hard, hardcore's living legend is how he was billed when he was with ECW. And there's no denying that. None. But then the very next day, I'm still like, just damn, man, I live in a world with no Terry Funk. But then the very next day, probably the most shocking news to ever hit the world of professional wrestling. 
Triple H announces that Wyndham Rotunda, better known by probably one of the greatest characters to ever exist in this era of professional wrestling, Bray Wyatt, a man who was able to change his character and still scare the shit out of you every time he did. A man who was able to change his character to fit the needs of who Wyndham Rotunda was at that time. Passed away at the age of 36. He'd been sick for a while. He'd been out of wrestling for a while. He had an injury, and then he got sick. Nobody would really say what it was that made him sick, but we found out he had a heart problem. Coming from somebody who just recently had a heart attack, that hit home quite a bit for me. Then we find out he had COVID. And that kind of exacerbated the heart issue that he was going through. And he passed away because of the complications of COVID. He had a heart attack and passed away. Just look at the man's name. His real name. Wyndham Rotunda. If the last name Rotunda doesn't raise ring any bells to you, maybe the character that we know and hate, <laughs> lovingly hate, will. His father is WWE Hall of Famer Mike Rotunda, better known to the world as Erwin R. Scheister, IRS. Mike Rotunda, his father, was really good friends with Barry Wyndham, which is how Wyndham became his first name. You know, being as big a wrestling fan as I used to be, I used to watch it all, man. I would go back and I would watch NXT. I would watch Impact Wrestling. I would try to get a Ring of Honor whenever I could. I would watch the Japanese pay-per-views. Not necessarily saying legally, but I would. But I would do all of that. I, I would, I would, my world used to be entranced in professional wrestling, which is why when this show started, it was going to be a wrestling review show. But then I decided there's a million and a half of those. I don't need to do that. I remember Husky Harris, one of his first characters in the WWE back in the old NXT days. I remember all of that. I remember. I just remember the passion that he had. And then he he transitioned into Bray Wyatt and he started doing the Wyatt family gimmick, even back in NXT. With another person who we unfortunately no longer have anymore, John Huber. Better known to the wrestling world as either Brody Lee, the exalted one Brody Lee from AEW, but I knew him as Brody Lee even before. Long before he was even Luke Harper in the WWE, I was watching Brody Lee on television. Back in the old pro wrestling Ohio days. That tells you how entranced into the world of professional wrestling I used to be. 
But that's also how I knew the man Johnny Gargano long before he was in WWE. Back when he was the whole shebang, Johnny Gargano. But the second I, I saw Bray Wyatt, I knew that this guy was going to be special. I knew that this character was going to be a character that was going to last a long time in this business. And he proved me right. He proved everybody right. He was one of the unfortunate tragedies of the payroll cuts due to COVID. And the wrestling fans and the wrestling world went, What? Are you crazy, Vince? You got rid of Bray Wyatt? What? There's so many other people you could have gotten rid of, but you get rid of Bray? What? Everybody was waiting for it. Everybody was waiting for Bray Wyatt to make an appearance in AEW. And it never happened. He waited because he knew that WWE made a mistake. He knew he would make it back into the WWE. And this was after, after he'd already changed his character a couple of times. When he first came out, he was more the cult leader, just sitting in the rocking chair, all of that. But then he reinvented the character again, and he became the eater of worlds. Went on to win the WWE World Heavyweight Championship. But then he left, came back after a little bit, and he had the Firefly Funhouse. I remember watching the Firefly Funhouse, and I'm just sitting here, and I, I I look at my wife, and I just go, he's got something big planned. And then slowly, as the Firefly Funhouse kept going, you would see the heel hurt gloves, the let me in, all of that. And then finally, he's like, I'm going to let you in on my secret. And that's when he revealed the fiend. I remember seeing The Fiend for the first time, and I'm just like. Uh, Bray Wyatt's pissed, and he's going to take it out on the entire fucking locker room. And that's exactly what he did. The Fiend then became a world champion. And for me, being a comic book fan, and as you, as you can see from the title of the show, we're going to be talking about a comic book here in just a little bit. But seeing The Fiend's mask and seeing what The Fiend did with the belt and everything like that it reminded me of one of my favorite Batman stories, Death of the Family, where the Joker cuts his face off. Or actually, as the toy maker, cut his face off. And he delivers it to Gotham City Police Department. Disappears for a year and then comes back. Kills just about every cop Gotham City has just to collect his face again. And then tricks Batman into thinking that his entire family has been killed. 
And when I say his family, obviously, you know, his parents have been dead since he was a little kid. But I'm talking Robin, Red Robin, Nightwing, Batgirl, Batwoman, everybody. The entire Batman family, including Alfred. That's who the Joker was. But then when you see the Fiend's mask and you see kind of what he was doing with it, I saw a lot of that version of the Joker in it. So that was cool. It was interesting. It was interesting to see that. But then, like I said, you know, Bray left because of the budget cuts, and then he came back, and he reinvented himself again, and then they introduced another character, Uncle Howdy. And there's a lot of conjecture among the professional wrestling community that Uncle Howdy is actually his brother, Bo Dallas. Mr. Bo Leave. That Bo Dallas. And they would have done a lot with that character, I think. And they would have done a lot with Uncle Howdy. And they would have, they were talking about bringing Alexa Bliss back in. But then Alexa Bliss decided she wanted to take some time away. And they were going to bring her back as Sister Abigail. I think that that's the character that she was portraying. They never really did reveal who that was. But the WWE did a great job in honoring. Wyndham and honoring Bray Wyatt. And I mean, if you ask me who the first ballot Hall of Famer is going to be for next year's Hall of Fame, no doubt in my mind. And then AEW had their pay per view last weekend. And they even mentioned Wyndham, which I thought was a great thing. And then Tony Khan, you know, there's a lot of going on about Tony Khan right now because of the situation that's going on in AEW with CM Punk. But Tony Khan told everybody that was on his roster that if they wanted to skip Dynamite and skip Rampage and go to Wyndham's memorial that they had the right to. That's something he didn't need to do, but he did it. Because he understood that there's a lot of people in his company that were friends with this man. And Becky Lynch told an amazing story at the end of Raw about her time with Wyndham. Obviously, she spent a lot of time with Wyndham over in NXT. But she was going to have her first ever tables match. And Wyndham walked up to her and he, and, he, and he asked her, he's like, do you have any idea what you're doing? And she's like, fuck, I don't. I have no idea what I'm doing. He took the rest of the day to show her how to pull the table out, set the table up, how to put somebody through it safely, how to go through it safely. When he even had his own match to get ready for. But he sat down and he took the time to show Becky Lynch how to make the table look real and how to do a table match. That's who Bray Wyatt was. And to see Eric Rowan and Braun Strowman, two of the biggest men in this business, standing on that stage crying because their friend was no longer here. That, that, that just shows you the impact he had. 
And you 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 got to know that the Huber family was at the memorial. They made John Huber, Brody Lee, a household name, being part of the Wyatt family. The only reason Dark Order worked the way it did in in AEW for as long as it did was because of the impact that John Huber, Brody Lee, Luke Harper had. No doubt in my mind about that. None. I think my noise canceller is causing all kinds of sound issues, but again, you know, we're going to be moving Spook Central, so we'll see if it goes away once I do. Oh, look at that. I think it's gone. Or it's just not as prominent. Maybe I just hear it in my headphones. I don't know. But um, we're going to take a moment and do a little bit of a moment of silence for both of these great legends. And then we'll get into our main topic for the week. Rest in peace to both of these great legends. But let's get into it. So, every once in a while, a character comes along, be it in a movie, in a TV show, professional wrestling, whatever you want to say it, or wherever you want to get it from. That inspires you, or you just, for some reason that maybe you don't even know yet, gravitate to. This comic book character was that character for me. I've never really been the traditional superhero guy. I mean, do I like Superman? Yeah, I do, you know, and especially because he's he's a Cleveland guy, right? The For those of you that may not know, the creators of Superman... Jerry Siegel and Joel Schuster were from right here in Cleveland. That's why we have the Superman license plates. That's why there's a, a huge display of Superman stuff at the airport. You know, that, that's all because of where Siegel and Schuster were from. They also changed the book, the world of comic books to where creators were finally going to get recognition for their characters. Batman. Obviously, I'm a huge Batman fan. But Batman, to me, is not your traditional superhero. Why? He doesn't have any superpowers. He's not a mutant. He's not a metahuman. Whatever you want to call those particular kind of characters. He doesn't come from a planet far, far away that exploded. He's just a kid who witnessed the worst possible thing that any kid could ever witness, and that's the murder of his parents. And he vowed after that that he would never let that happen to any other family. Does does Batman fail every once in a while? Fuck yes, he does. Quite a bit, sometimes. 
when it involves the Joker. But that's really neither here nor there. But Batman is an anti-hero. He's a vigilante. The cops just let him do what he do because he's fucking effective. And because they can't tackle all the metahumans and all the super psychos that follow Batman around. Like the Joker. Like Mr. Freeze. Bane. But there's one character who, in my opinion, defined what an anti-hero was. And it came out of a comic book company that people didn't expect to last a year. And this comic book company had some of the greatest artists, writers of that time. In 1993, when Image Comics started, you had guys like Jim Lee, Lawson, Eric Lawson, Todd McFarlane. Todd McFarlane, who helped redefine the character of Batman in the 80s. Todd McFarlane, who's probably known as one of the best, the best, one, one of the best, that, that's the word I meant to emphasize, one of the best artists of Spider-Man. He made Spider-Man do things in his images of Spider-Man that no other artist before him had ever done. And that ever since, they've been copying what Todd McFarlane was able to make Spider-Man do. A lot of the things that you saw in the Sam Raimi movies with Tom, with, uh, what the fuck is his name? Tobey Maguire. Like, the, the swinging that, that he was doing at the end of the movie with the spider cam and all that. All those movements and everything like that. The very first artist to ever try to do anything like that with Spider-Man was Todd McFarlane. And after all the success that he had with DC and, and Marvel Comics, he started his own comic book company, Image Comics. Characters like the Youngbloods, Invincible, those are all sto- uh, characters that came out of Image Comics. Jim Lee, Eric Lawson, and other phenomenal artists all came out of their time at Image Comics. But the biggest title and the biggest character that is still around to this day and holds multiple records when it comes to the world of comic books was Todd McFarlane's own creation, Spawn. What made Spawn so different from everybody else? Well, I'll tell you. First of all, and this is something that I don't even think Spawn gets a lot of credit for, and I I don't think that that is fair. People always bitch, whine, and complain that there's not enough African-American comic book heroes out there. Or let me rephrase that. There's not enough badass African-American comic book characters out there. Well, then look at this motherfucker right here. The man underneath the mask of Spawn is African-American, Lieutenant Colonel Al Simmons. He was betrayed by the agency that he worked for, the CIA. He was a contract killer for the CIA. Betrayed 
by the CIA because he wanted to put a child killer and pedophile behind bars. He was hired by a senator to find the man responsible for killing his daughter, a child murderer and pedophile by the name of Billy Kincaid. His boss found out about it, ordered a hit on him. A man that was supposed to be his partner killed him. After he died, he got sent down to hell. More specifically, the eighth level of hell. Where the devil of that level, the Malbolgia, reigned. And he made Al Simmons a deal. Lead my army. Become the general of hell's army. And I'll let you see your wife again. Yes. I'll lead your army. Anything for my wife. Anything for love. Everything that Al Simmons ever did was for love. Love of country. Love of duty. And love of his wife. Wanda Blake. Malbolgia spent five years preparing the earth for Al's return as the hell spawn. During that time, Wanda remarried to a man named Terry Fitzgerald. What makes Terry Fitzgerald so, so important? He was Al Simmons' best friend. Terry gave Wanda the one thing that Al couldn't, a child. This fueled Spawn's rage even more. Hated Malbolgia for what he did. Hated the fact that five years had gone by. And then every time he would turn around, somebody else was either after him or after the alley of homeless that he was damned to when he returned. So I say that Spawn has broken many, many records. We'll get into all of that. But why, why do I love this character so much? For all the reasons I just mentioned. And yes, I agree. There are very few and far between African-American heroes for people to get involved with. I'll be the first person to admit that. But I also think it's because not a lot of people know where to look. How many people that never picked up a copy of Spawn when you go to see the movie or you're watching the cartoon on HBO prior to those two things happening knew that Al Simmons was black or knew that the man underneath that mask was black. I'll wait. Anybody? Bueller? 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 Thought so. It wasn't until I started reading Spawn comic books before the movie came out, before the cartoon came out, that I figured out that Al Simmons was an African-American and very proud to be African-American. And Todd even brings a lot of those situations into the Spawn comics. What do I mean by that? Well, there's an issue very early on in Spawn's history where he's traveling back to New York City 
after having an issue with his uniform. Where he runs into the KKK and they're trying to burn down an African-American family's farm. He steps in. Finds out who the leader of this particular sect of of KKK members are. Finds out it's the judge for the city. Takes care of them. Goes back to that family and says, you'll never have to worry about them again. Live your life free the way it should be. One more trick of the devil. He can transmorph himself into a human form. That human form is a blonde-haired, blue-eyed, white guy. So he only did that once or twice and then said, I'm not a white guy. I'm not doing that ever again. He found a way to go see his wife again, even though she was married to Terry at this point. How does his wife react? She's mortified to see him. His face burnt. His body burnt, ravaged with pain. If he uses too much of his powers, he's damned back to having be, to have his life be tortured in hell for the rest of his damnation. His uniform is its own living entity. But not only does he have human garbage that he has to deal with, he also has to deal with heaven's garbage. Spawn hunter angels constantly coming after him. But Spawn is an anti-hero. The definition of an anti-hero. The man is damned to lead Hell's army, but yet he goes and does whatever he feels is right. What he feels is right. A lot of it is vengeance, because he's pissed off that he got murdered for no fucking reason. Pissed off that his best friend married his wife and gave her a kid. Pissed off that he found out his boss was part of the reason he got fucking murdered to begin with. But he's also pissed off that the devil lied to him. And he even tells that to Malbolgia's face. He's like, you have my soul. You have my body and I'll lead your army. But I won't do it willingly. You will not take my will. I will not bow before you as my master. But he appears monthly in a comic book of the same name published by American comic company Image Comics, as well as a number of films, television series, and video game adaptations set in the Image universe. Created by Todd McFarlane, Spawn first appeared in Spawn number 1 in May 1992. The series has spun off other comics, including Angela, Curse of the Spawn, and Sam and Twitch, and a Japanese manga, Shadows of Spawn. He was adapted into a 1997 feature film portrayed by Michael Jai White and an HBO animated series lasting from 1997 until 1999. Spawn was voiced by Keith David. A series of action figures from McFarlane Toys, an upcoming reboot starring Jamie Foxx and Jeremy Renner, and the character appears in annual compilations, miniseries, and specials written 
by guests, authors, and artists. Numerous crossover storylines with other Image comics include Savage Dragon, Invincible, and has had three run-ins with the Dark Knight himself, Batman. But speaking of Spawn action figures, I'll be right back. Now, I have more on the way. Well, one more on the way, I guess I should say. Um, but just to show that I like Spawn, and I've always liked Spawn, I have another version of this action figure right here. This is the original Spawn action figure that McFarlane Toys released out of the box. I have another one. This exact same one with the face mask. Still in the box with the weapon that it came with and the comic book that it came with. But I also have the variant of this where Spawn is not wearing his mask. And it has his iconic shoelace face that he had for most of the first 50 issues. There's a little bit of conjecture over who, how he got the shoelace face. Um, there's two. There's two versions of the story. In the very first meeting between Spawn and Batman, Spawn said something kind of stupid to Batman at the end of the book, and Batman throws a batarang and goes right in between his face, splitting his necroplasm and his necroflesh in half. Then. In a Spawn issue that had yet to be released and came out after you see his face getting sewn together. Well, not even sewn together. You see a bum from the streets putting a shoelace in his face to put it back together. Because like I said, if he uses too much of his necroplasmic energy, he ends up back, back in hell damned. Um, he says, uh, I ran into an asshole in black. Now, in, a, in an issue, like I said, that had yet to be released of Spawn, that asshole in black turned out to be Harry Houdini himself. And Houdini, um, I don't remember exactly what he did, but he did something to split his face open as well. I, for one, because Spawn Batman actually came out before that issue, I say that Spawn Batman is the truth. But this one is the Mortal Kombat 11 version of Spawn, also released by McFarlane Toys. Uh, as you can see, it's a little bit different. It's got his... Uh, level 9 version of his armor. Much more detailed. A lot bigger. But uh, that's one of the other ones I have. I actually have two of these too. Because they came with different weapons. One came with a sword. One came with a battle axe. The, my battle axe version is actually on my desk at work. Uh, currently beating the shit out of Leonardo, the Ninja Turtle, with his own swords. Um, but I have 
those two. I have the battle axe and the sword, and then a third version came out with a mace, but I wasn't going to buy a third version of the action figure just to get a mace. Then I have Movie Spawn. Obviously, you can see Movie Spawn does not come with spikes, for one, but it also doesn't have the cape or the chains. And that was just because, due to budget reasons, because nobody believed in comic book movies back in 1997, they didn't give it to him. Now, his eyes are green, which is why they look funky. But you can kind of see the little bit of a difference that they did in Spawn for the movie. Then there was also a variant of this action figure that came out. With no mask. So that's kind of what the other one that I still have in the package. But this is the other gun he comes with. And he also came with these um, ammo rounds. But yeah, I'm a huge Spawn fan. I do have the third version of Spawn, which is the first one with the level 9 armor. Still in the box. Uh, Spawn Series 3. Um, and then I have another version of the Mortal Kombat Spawn. Still in the box. And I have the Angela figure still in the box as well. Uh, but McFarlane's, let's talk a little bit about the, the history of Spawn, how McFarlane came up with the character. And I actually do have a picture, the very first picture that Tom McFarlane ever drew of Spawn in 1977. You can kind of see the difference between the two of them. Uh, but McFarlane had a knack for drawing very early on. Uh, he created the character Spawn when he was 16, spending countless hours perfecting the appearance of each component of the character's visual design. Spawn saw considerable popularity upon its initial release in the early 90s. Comic book collecting uh, had a marked upswing at the time, fueled by the spectacular boom looking for the next hot book that would jump in value after its release. McFarlane had enjoyed superstar status among comic fans with his work on Spider-Man. Gee, didn't I say that? And uh, he would have a subsequent break with, Farlan, uh, with Marvel and the forma formation of uh, Image Comics was seen by many as a sea change event, changing the way in which comics were produced. And McFarlane was a writer and artist on Spider-Man, along with uh, doing art and writing some issues of Spawn, uh, Batman as well, like we said. Uh, but before we go to break here, let's take a look at the original version of Spawn that Tom McFarlane drew when he was 16 years old. In 1977. Make it a little bit taller here. There we go. So not much really changed in the look of Spawn. Obviously he still has the... the well, they don't look like skulls, but they might be skulls up near the top. The full face mask. Uh, the belt design changed a little bit, obviously, from what we saw. The, the boots definitely changed. Um, 
put this one here so you can kind of see this is what Spawn looked like in the first early issues of the comic. Um, now, I don't have the piece that goes up here anymore, but there are two skulls and a chain that go right here as well. But you can see the middle kind of changed to a skull. Well, it, fucking camera. Come on. But there's a skull and things that go here in the middle. But this is a version one spawn, what he looked like in issue one of the comic book spawn. And then here's kind of what he morphed into a little bit after that. You can kind of see the skull there with the chains. So that changed a little bit. Obviously, the mass changed. But we'll put the other spawn back on the screen now. But with that, we'll get into more about the history of Spawn and how he was already breaking records with his very first issue. When we come back right here on Money's Crazy Mind on Red Line Radio LLC, see ya in about five or seven. Oh, wow, that sounds, that sounds really great. Wow, that sounds like a really good deal. Who are you talking to? Uh, the Northeast Ohio Ghostbusters. Hello, Northeast Ohio Ghostbusters. What are you wearing? Uh... Khakis? Well, that sounds hideous. Well, they're Ghostbusters. All right, all right. Well, we are definitely uh, back. Back, 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 back. Hey, sweet lady. We are going to get back into our conversation about the record-breaking and continues to be one of the longest-running, continuous comic books, Spawn. Now, I'm sure a lot of you are sitting there saying, well, wait a minute, Spawn came out in 1992. We, you know, Superman, Batman, the X-Men, all of those other books have been around for so much longer. How is this one able to be called a record-breaking comic and one of the longest-running? Think about this, ladies and gentlemen. Yes, those books have been going on since their creation. However, DC and Marvel have changed the numbering of all those books multiple times in the past. Spawn has been continuous since 1992. And also, Image Comics is an independent label. So that also means that they don't have the distribution, or at least they didn't in the beginning, they didn't have the distribution that DC and Marvel did. They didn't have the fan base that DC and Marvel did. But yet this book was still outselling even Batman and Superman and the X-Men back in that time. Wizard, a, a magazine that used to be dedicated to comic books back in the day, listed... Um, in, in May 1998, rated the launch of Image Comics as the number one in the list of events that rocked the comic book industry from 1991 to 2008. And you want to know what else happened in that time? They fucking killed Superman. The first issue of Spawn was very popular, selling 1.7 million copies. During Spawn's second year of production, Wizard noted that the top dog at Image is undoubtedly 
Todd McFarlane's Spawn. Which, without the added marketing push of fancy covers, polybagged issues, or card inserts, has become the best-selling comic on a consistent basis that is currently being published. Sales slumped around the time of Spawn number 25, but by Spawn 45, it was once again a consistently strong seller. The popularity of the franchise peaked with the 1997 Spawn feature film. The pre-release publicity, which helped make Spawn the top-selling comic book for May 1997. In addition, the spin-off Curse of the Spawn number 9 came in at the fifth best-selling in that same month. However, the film was only a mild commercial success and failed to start a franchise based on the character. A 2008 issue, Spawn number 174, ranked 99th as the best-selling comic of the month with retail orders of 22,667. In October 2008, issue 185, which marked both a new creative direction and Todd McFarlane's return to the book, sold out at the distribution level and received a second printing. By issue 191 in May of 2009, with an estimated sales of 19,803 copies, Spawn had dropped below the top 100 titles sold monthly to comic shops, as reported by Diamond Distribution. As of September 2010, Spawn was ranked at 115 in the top 300 sales figures report at Diamond. On the day of its release in 2011, issue 200 sold out. The issue featured work by Greg Capullo, David Finch, Michael Golden, Jim Lee, Rob Liefeld, you know, the creator of Deadpool, Mark Silvestri, Danny Mickey, and Ashley Wood. A second printing was released the next month. Spawn began a resurgence in popularity as the title approached its 300 issue with the title once again becoming a fixture in Diamond's Top 100. The 300th issue made Spawn the longest-running independent comic book of all time. In 2021, McFarlane expanded, I'm sorry, expanded Spawn's universe with three ongoing titles and a one-shot titled Spawn's Universe Number 1 which sold 211,000 copies. The first spinoff, titled King Spawn, was released in August of 2021, having pre-order sales of 497,000 copies. Total sales of 520,000. The next title, released in October, Gunslinger Spawn, sold uh, 385,000 copies, which made it the biggest launch for a new ongoing superhero title in 25 years. The final new series, The Scorched, was released in January 2022 and sold more than 270,000 copies. McFarlane also stated in an interview that he wants Spawn to outlive him the same way characters of Spider-Man, Batman, Superman, and even Disney have. So some of you might be asking, 
how a character about a man damned to hell and to become the le- the head the general of hell's army can go on to be such a popular character. Well, like I stated, he, Spawn taps into a lot of the the creative or the the social subconscious of what of what was happening in America at the time. The movie was not that big of a success, and to be honest with you, it's not that good. But when you have a character like this that is more deeply rooted in adult themes and things of that nature, a PG-13 rating just doesn't do it for this kind of character. The reboot starring Jamie Foxx, Jeremy Renner, and rumor has it even Leonardo DiCaprio is supposed to be rated R. Todd McFarlane is helming it as the writer and director. And part of that is what has taken so long to get this reboot film done. But then also most recently, Jamie Foxx's health has added to that as well. But some of the biggest names in comics have had a lot to do with the creation of Spawn. The main writers... Obviously, Todd McFarlane, who did issues 1 through 7, 12 through 15, 21 through 150, 85 uh, 85 through current. He also wrote numbers, uh, uh, issues 201 and through 219 under a pseudonym of Will Carlton. Then you also have Brian Holgan, who was writing with Todd in issues 71 through 150, 185 to 190. Dave Hine, who wrote issues 150 through 184. Jonathan David Goff, issues 200 through 241, 297, 303 to 305. Paul Jenkins, 251 to 254. Eric Larson, I'm sorry, his last name was Larson, uh, 259 to 266. And Eric Larson also has the honor of also writing the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles image run as well. Dara Savage, 276 to 282. And Roy McConville, 327 to the present. So he's also working with Todd on that. Here are some of my favorite stories and some of my favorite writers that have done them. Um, Alan Moore, uh, Watchmen. Swamp Thing. Do I need to say more? Wrote issues 8 and 37 and also wrote Spawn Blood Feud Prelude Backup Story in issue number 32. Neil Gaiman wrote issue number 9. He also wrote a scene in number 26, uncredited. Dave Sim, the creator of Cerberus, wrote issue 10. Frank Miller wrote issue 11, then also had the team up with Spawn and Batman. Grant Morrison, issues 16 through 18. Andrew Grossenberg, 19 through 20. Tom Orishowski, issues 19 through 20. Julia Simmons, number 38. Steve Niles, 105 to 106. Robert Kirkman, Number 200, who's Robert Kirkman, you may ask? Well, Robert Kirkman is the guy that wrote and invented The Walking Dead. And the cover for issue 200 is a throwback 
to The Walking Dead. And then Scott Snyder wrote a story in issue 300. Scott Snyder's probably most popular because of his run on Batman during the DC uh, New 52 era. Obviously, you have a lot of artists that have contributed as well. Uh, Todd McFarlane, issues 1 through 15, 21 through 24, 26 through 34, 50, 195 to 196, 200 and 300. Greg Capullo, also very well known for his run on Batman with Scott Snyder. Ding, ding, ding. Issues 16 through 20, 27 through 30, or 26 through 37, 39, 41, 43, 45, 47, 49 through 75, 78 through 100, 193, 200, and 300, and 301. Angel Medina, a man that I've actually had the uh, the honor and privilege of meeting. Uh, issues 100, 101 through 139 and 142 to 150. Philip Tan, 150 through 164. Issues 306 through 307. Brian Harberlin, 166 through 173. 176 through 178. 180 to 184. Wilchi Pachaccio, uh, I hope I'm pronouncing that right. 185 to 192, 194 to 195, and 197. Eric Larson, 199, 258 through 266, and contributed uncredited inking work on number 27. Sisman Kredansky, 201 through 250, 256, and 257. 267 to 275, 283, 291 to 292. John Boy Myers, 251 to 256. Jason Sean Alexander, 267 to 282, 284 to 290, 293 to 305. And Carlo Barini, 311 through current. Guest artists, Mark Silvestri on uh, issues 25 and 200. Tony Daniel, who actually had a really great run on some Batman issues as well. 38, 40, 42, 44, 46, and 48. Also drew for Spawn, Blood Feud, Prelude, Backup Story, and issue 32. Dwayne Turner, numbers 76 and 77. Nat Jones, 139 through 141. Uh, Lan Medina, 165. Bing uh, Cansonino. 174 to 175, Mike Mayhew, 179, Rob Liefeld, number 196, contributed uncredited work on number 11, along with Jim Lee. Carrie Randall, Carrie Randolph, 198, Robert Kirkman, 200, Michael Golden, 200, J. Scott Campbell, 300, Jerome Opina, 300 and 301, Clayton Crane, 301, Ken Lashley, 308 to 309. And Jim Muniz on 310. So Spawn has had quite a few titles. Um, uh, spinoffs, crossovers. Uh, so the first crossover and spinoff was Violator a three-issue miniseries written by Alan Moore with art by Bart Sears 
which focused on the conflict between Violator and Tony Twist and also featured Spawn. The Angela miniseries, a three-issue Angela limited series, was published and written by Neil Gaiman, illustrated by Greg Capullo. Along with Angela's one-shot were later reprinted in a trade paperback, which as of 2005 is out of print. Angela and Aria, a crossover between Angela and Aria, Angela and Glory. Glory was another title um, in the Image universe, uh, which was a crossover with those characters. Um, Celestine, the angel from Violator versus Bad Rock in a two-shot two series. Violator versus Bad Rock, a four-issue miniseries released in 1995 by Alan Moore, drawn by Brian Denham. Spawn Blood Feud, a four-issue miniseries released in 1995 by Alan Moore and drawn by Tony Daniel. Spawn the Impaler, a three-issue miniseries uh, in October 1996, inspired by the story of the Wachalian votive Vlad Tepes. Medieval Spawn and Witchblade, a three-issue miniseries was written by Garth Ennis. Medieval Spawn and the Wielder of the Witchblade team up against Lord Cardinal, Wielder of the Darkness. Curse of the Spawn, the first long-term monthly spinoff, consisted of a number of story arcs centered on supporting characters from the main series, such as Future Hell Spawn during the Apocalypse or Sam and Twitch aimed at an older demographic than the main series and significantly darker in tone with more disturbing visuals and themes and it ran for 29 issues. Spawn the Dark Ages. The series focused on Lord Covenant, a 12th century knight killed in an unholy crusade or a holy crusade far from his homeland who returns to earth as a hell spawn uh, as a plague of violence and turmoil over cover the English countryside. The Dark Knight must choose whether to align himself with the innocent inhabitants of the once thriving kingdom or with the malevolent forces of evil and corruption. It ran for 28 issues. And issues 15 through 28 featured writer Steve Niles and artist Nat Jones. Spawn Fan Edition, a three-issue miniseries centered around the Norse Hellspawn Nordak. Spawn Blood and Shadows. A Spawn Prestige format one-shot released in 1999. Cygor, a six-issue spinoff miniseries of a cybernetic uh, gorilla. Spawn the Undead, concentrated on Al Simmons. Unlike the original Spawn series, it was self-contained. A single-issue story written by Paul Jenkins. It lasted nine issues. Salmon Twitch. A spinoff of the of the uh, following the criminal investigators of detectives Sam Burke and Twitch Williams. It ran for twenty six issues. Case Files Sam and Twitch, continuation of Sam and Twitch for twenty five issues. Sam and Twitch the writer, a four issue miniseries which I own, which is fantastic. Haunt, Hell Spawn, Spawn Simony, Shadow of the Spawn. Spawn Toys, an issue, a mini, a nine-issue series of one-shots packed with early Spawn Toys. Spawn Architect of Fear, Spawn Blood and Salvation, Spawn Batman, an intercompany crossover by Frank Miller and Todd McFarlane, considered part of Spawn and Miller's Dark Knight Universe canon. Spawn uh, Batman Spawn War Devil, a continuation of Spawn Batman, written by Doug Mensch. 
Chuck Dixon and Alan Grant and drawn by Klaus Jansen. Adventures of the Spawn, Misery, Spawn Witchblade, Sam and Twitch True Detective, Spawn Resurrection, Spawn Kills Everyone, Spawn Kills Everyone 2, Spawn's Universe, The Scorched, King Spawn, Gunslinger Spawn, Batman Spawn, a third crossover one-shot of Spawn, Batman and Spawn written by McFarlane and drawn by Greg Capullo, Spawn Unwanted Violence, No Home Here, a story about Billy Kincaid's final victim from issue 5, Spawn Kills Every Spawn, a new series about Spawn killing every other version of himself, and New Gunslinger Spawn, uh, a series about his dark days of the Civil War. Uh, there was a dispute with Neil Gaiman over the, the use of the character Angela um, and Cagliostro and Medieval Spawn. All three characters were co-created and designed by Todd and continued to be featured in the series after Gaiman's involvement. Had some tie-ins with McFarlane's toy company. Coleostro had a prominent role in the live-action movie. Uh, McFarlane had agreed that Gaiman was a co-creator of the characters and paid him royalties for reprints, uh, graphic novels, and action figures. And after a few years, uh, he ceased the payments of royalties and gave Gaiman notice that he owned the rights to the characters, citing the copyright notice from number nine and claimed that Gaiman had worked, had been a work for hire and that McFarlane was the sole owner. In 2002, Gaiman filed a suit against McFarlane, and in response, McFarlane countersued. Gaiman had partnered with Marvel Comics to form Marvels and Miracles LLC, which bankrolled the lawsuit. The main goal was to determine the issue ownership for another character Gaiman felt he had a stake in, Miracle Man, which was the first, which at the time... McFarlane was believed to hold a sizable stake in after his buyout of the assets of Eclipse Comics. The issue was thrown out. Instead, the court chose to rule on breach of contract issue, the rights of ownership and copyrightability of the characters from Spawn Number 9. Several arguments were presented by McFarlane and all were rejected, leading to a sizable judgment against McFarlane and Image Comics. The matter went to appeal and the judgment was upheld in a 2003 decision. Gaiman's rights as co-creator and co-owner of Coleostro, Angela, and Medieval Spawn were acknowledged. The court's view was that Gaiman and McFarlane collaborated, uh, collaboration led to each contributing half of the work. Gaiman wrote the story while McFarlane illustrated the characters. Because of this, each held a 50% stake in the characters, Issue 9 was reprinted for the first time since the lawsuit was filed in the hardcover edition of Spawn Origins Volume Number 1. In a reprint collection of the first 12 issues of Spawn, the contentious issue, along with Dave Sims' issue number 10, featuring copyrighted character Cerberus, was excluded. But both issues have been reprinted in the hardcover and deluxe editions of Spawn Origins Collections Number 1. Uh, and the black and white 2012 and later 2021 color edition cross uh, soft cover omnibus spawn compendum number one, which I do own. The color trade paperback version, actually it's spawn compendium number one, collecting spawn issues one through fifty. McFarlane and Gaiman settled their dispute, and Gaiman was given full ownership over the character Angela. Gaiman, in return, sold his rights to the characters, uh, sold his rights to the character to Marvel Comics. 
Uh, McFarlane created mob enforcer character named Antonio Tony Twist Twistelli, which who McFarlane acknowledged was named after a hockey player, Tony Twist. Twist won a $15 million verdict in 2004 when a jury found McFarlane Productions had profited from Twist's likeness. The verdict was upheld after two appeals in June 2006, but the two later settled out of court for $5 million. Uh, but the spawn is Albert Francis Al Simmons, born in Detroit, Michigan. He is the second oldest of three children born to Bernard Simmons, a traveling salesman. Esther Simmons, a devil worshiper. Al Simmons is a very intelligent, physically strong, and highly decorated officer in the U.S. Marine Corps. Attaining the rank of lieutenant colonel while serving with the force recon, he later joined the Secret Service, becoming a high-ranking official. Uh, he's recruited by the Central Intelligence a Agency. Simmons later joins the U.S. Security Group, an umbrella agency encompassing the CIA, NSA, and NCS, or NSC, commanded by Director Jason Wynn and becomes a capable assassin. During a message in Botswana, Wynn grows tired of Simmons' increasingly increasing sense of morality, and as a result of this, Simmons' friend and partner, Bruce Stinson, codenamed Chapel, is secretly hired to kill him. Simmons is burned to death and sent to hell, making a deal with the devil Malbolgia. Simmons agrees to become a hell spawn, and after swearing to serve Malbolgia, he is allowed to see his wife, Wanda, one last time. Malbolgia returned Simmons to the living realm with a severely burned body and a demonic guardian named the Violator. Simmons, now a hellspawn, returns to Earth with lack of understanding of his previous identity, and he wanders in a state of confusion with only vague memories of his former life, including his own name, his marriage to Wanda, and the fact that he was once deceased. Spawn occasionally experiences painful flashbacks and, eventual mem uh, and eventually remembers his deal with Malbolgia. Using C CIA files, he tracks down his wife and finds her married to his former best friend, Terry, with whom she has a daughter named Cyan. And he realizes five years have passed since his death. Spawn runs into a fellow Hellspawn who informs him that his powers are fueled by necroplasm and that once they are depleted, he will return to Hell. Not wanting to return to Hell, Spawn attempts to find a new purpose in life while using a little, as little power as possible. He's thrust into several anti-hero adventures, taking down street gangs and organized crime in New York, battling against various criminals, Spawn finds a new purpose, stopping evil. In his early battles, Spawn faces street thugs and gangs, becoming a dark, sadistic anti-hero and brutally murdering the pedophile and child murderer Billy Kincaid. Spawn gains the attention of police detectives Burke and Twitch and becomes king of Rat City, a gathering of alleys populated by the city's homeless. There he meets Coliostro, who knows much about Spawn and becomes his mentor. 
He's hunted by warrior Angel Angela, who hunts Hellspawn for sport, and battles the cyborg mob enforcer over to kill. And he lights the angelic warrior anti-spawn, known as the Redeemer, who was really Jason Wynn at first, but then they turn him into somebody else. Following the conflict with the Redeemer, Spawn's costume undergoes an ex- a significant upgrade. The upgraded suit features a new cape and chains, which are able to change shape. Additionally, the boots and gloves are replaced with spikes. After this transformation, the suit starts feeding off souls. Tony Twist sends a reprogrammed overt kill after Terry and Spawn is forced to reveal his identity while saving his friend. A well-placed shot from Twitch Williams brings down Overkill, and Spawn is part of Angela's trial and later travels to the South and encounters the KKK, an abusive father of two boys. After returning to New York, he is attacked by a new Redeemer, causing his costume to evolve once more. After another encounter with the curse, the suit sends him to hell. Malbolgia later sends him back with full control of the suit. Spawn was living, wears a living symbiont costume. Uh, Letha of the Seventh House of K, also known as K7 Letha, while wearing it. The host assumes a dominant role over the suit. His shroud, spikes, chains, and skulls are part of the, uh, an organism bonded to his central nervous system that protects Spawn even if he is unconscious. He then destroys the Malbolgia and becomes the king of hell and then starts Armageddon and back and then comes back to the mortal world. So that's pretty much it. That's the history of Spawn. And uh, while I'm still getting caught up in a lot of issues of Spawn that I missed over the years when I wasn't getting comic books and stuff like that, It all pretty much goes to the same thing. Spawn is doing everything he can to get out of his deal with Malbolgia, which is why he destroys him and becomes the king of hell. But he's one of those characters, and obviously we see it throughout the years, he's one of those characters that just finds a way to to stay relevant and current. He's outsold every other superhero over the past few years. And has become, obviously, one of my all-time favorites. But that's going to do it for this one. We're going to cut this one a little bit short, and I'm going to tell you guys why. Because I am on my way, as soon as I end this, to my corner bar to go and hang out with the man who is the best man in my wedding and the brand-new award-winning... Best cover band in Cleveland, Ohio Four Locos So if you guys want to come hang out with me And see some great music And and hear a great band Come on down to my corner bar In Parma Heights They start at 8pm Which is in about a half hour And we'll be there until midnight until next week, everybody, where I think we're going to be talking about an unsolved mystery, one that has me going, how did the police ever consider this to be a suicide? 
Until next week, everybody. Have a week. Money's Crazy Mind is a proud Redline Media Group and nameless, faceless production. That's all, folks.